Yes, we are live. I'm trying out these little intro things, seeing if they work very well on this live tracker. I don't know how, how smooth that is, but I've gotten a few requests to do a review of this uh, damn chapper, Chapa and uh, Turretin fan and their OpenTS proof text. I hear there's actually funny things in there. And so, like, uh, for example, when, when I claim that prophecy works loosely within the Bible, um, there's some counterclaims that, you know, it, it's it's not loose. In fact, it's quite accurate. And so when the Bible says that that Israel's going to be oppressed and wanderers uh, and enslaved for 400 years, and it's 430 years, eh, that's close enough. That means it's accurate prophecy and not loose prophecy. Um, yeah, um, I if if I come across that, I'm going to have to clip that out, note some timestamps. But today we will be listening to Dan and Turton fan talk about this. I'm going to kind of skip forward because they got uh, like a teaser or something. I don't know. We'll skip over to their intro and see what they have to say. Fisher and Will Duffy. And it was a really good discussion uh, back and forth on uh, Cole Perkins's channel, Practical Faith. And uh, I was with my uh, Armenian uh, friend, Dane, and we presented the Armenian side. And um, Chris and Will presented the Open PS side, and it was a it was a good debate. We got into a lot of stuff. Um, so, did you have a chance to listen to the debate? And what did you uh, think were some of like the key um, takeaways that you took from the debate, and what you might have experienced there? So, for full transparency, yes, I did. I did watch the debate. I listened to the debate. I watched the debate. Up to the point of the audience questions, I started listening to that part. Also, you and I have had a little discussion offline beforehand, so hopefully that will uh, pollute this conversation in any way. But uh, in case I reference something that we talked about that that's not in this recording uh, for the audience, you know, for the audience, that's what, what I'm talking about. Also, I had uh, posted a couple things to Facebook about this as well. So, uh, you know, just as Transparency, that's the background of this. And I uh, I will say up front on a positive note that I did think that both Chris and Will are skilled debaters. They, they seem to understand the idea of debate and they seem to try to follow the rules of debate. They seem to be polite debaters. They seem to be you know not, not abusive in terms of trying to shout down the other side. And of course, Dan, as you know, uh, I know you're an experienced debater and that you're good at it. And uh, it was my first time watching Dale debate, and I thought he did a, he did a great job as well. Uh, so overall, it's a good debate in that sense. I didn't like the format of the debate in the sense that I would have preferred more cross-examination in the style of what, you know, in the academic circles is team policy debate, where if you have a four-person yeah, so I think they're just going to go over that uh, for now, the intro to the debate, talking about how the debate's formatted. So we're going to skip ahead to they've conveniently bookmarked everything for us, and they bookmarked the Exodus in 400 years at uh, the like the 1240 timestamp. So we'll click there and see what they say about that. And I, I hear, I haven't seen this, I hear it's going to be a blast. You know, that's back in, in Deuteronomy 
chapter 12 and verse 31. So they quote Deuteronomy. God, God warns the Israelites not to follow the gods of other nations. Um, and uh, for they even burn their sons and daughter in the fire to their gods. And uh, God specifically forbids human sacrifice in Leviticus 18.21 and, and Deuteronomy uh, 18.10. So the problem with the interpretation of, well, this came as a big shock to God, is that it's not only denying that God knows the future, but um, also that God denies, they're denying that God knows the possibility that this would happen. Because if God, if... Um, yeah, so it seems like they're right now covering a proof text that I don't think was hit on in the debate as an open theist proof text, uh, burning your sons to Moloch. And I've stated elsewhere that that never entered my mind is likely a reference, more likely a reference to it would never entered my mind to command Israel to do this. Uh, that that's it's rather than like a shock. It's my it never entered my mind that they would ever do this. It never entered my mind to command them to do this because it was a Yahweh sacrifice cult. And so um, it's not a good open theistic proof text. It is a good proof text against Calvinism, which thinks that God commands everything, but it's not one that you want to champion in any debate. So maybe they're going to hit the Exodus sometime soon. Hopefully I'll just let them play it out. If certain open theists are kind of more conservative and, and closer to, um, I would say, frankly, a biblical view, and they'll say that God knows all possibilities. But for them, they can't take this text in a straightforward sense. They can't th think that it came as a complete shock to God and God never considered it at all. Because if, if God knew all the possibilities, then the literal reading wouldn't hold good. Um, but in, I think Chris and Will are more extreme open theists, and they're more open to the idea that, yeah, this really just surprised God. Um, but in that case, then how is it that God had predicted these things earlier? Uh, so uh, this is kind of a misrepresentation. First of all, literal reading would allow what I just described, how what didn't enter God's mind was him commanding them to sacrifice their children to him. That's what didn't enter his mind. And so that's just a straightforward reading. Uh, second thing I need to touch on is this phrase of literal reading. There's always uh, within Dan Chapa and his discussion of the debate, oh, here's the literal reading. If you're to take literal reading, then this must be the case. Here's a different verse. And if you were to take this literally, this must be what it means. Whereas when we're when we're reading reading the Bible, you know, uh, you're you're looking for not necessarily a woodenly literal meaning for any phrase, but what is the best approximation of what's being communicated in the particular context? And uh, that's different than a literal reading. So if I, I I'm talking about someone and I say their elevator doesn't go to the top floor, again that's that's not, I'm not talking about them owning a building and having an elevator and going to the top floor. There are idiomatic expressions within the Bible. One of my favorite idiomatic expressions is used in conjunction with King David and talking about he's going to put his hand on the sea. Um, well, that's within the Psalms. But what that means is it's, a, it's not about him having hands. It's not about him actually touching physical water. It's just an illustration that his rule is going to stretch from coast to coast, that uh, that's 
that's going to be under the control of his authority. It's talking about hands. It's not about whether King David literally has hands or not. It's just an illustration to conceptualize for the audience some sort of immediate point. So illustrations and idioms and allusions and metaphors must have uh, expressed meaning. Uh, as I, I pointed out in the Dan Chapa when he was talking to Tyler Baylor, that metaphor works by linking cognitive domains. God is like a father. Okay, so now we kind of know what a father is like. A father is protective and a father is a provider. A father is a, someone who's trustworthy. So we take those concepts of that cognitive domain and we can map that onto God, who also shares those characteristics. So it should, it's taking characteristics of one domain and mapping them onto another domain so that we can import those concepts. It's, it's common overlap. So idioms and metaphors have to have some sort of meaning that gives some sort of tangible, tangible takeaways to the audience. And so, yeah, we're not reading the Bible woodenly literal. That's that should never be our goal. Our goal always should be what is the immediate context? How does this language work in the context to communicate some sort of meaning? What is that meaning to the audience? And, and very rarely are you going to say, oh, there's no meaning here. This is just condescending language meant to give us nothing in return, which is often the, the Calvinistic Calvinistic cope. Oh, it says God repents. Well, doesn't mean he repents. That just means there's a, a process change or something like that. Well, yeah, what, what is, what's the cognitive domain uh, in the one case and how is it being mapped to the cognitive domain in the other case? How, what are we supposed to take away from that? especially in the context of story that's that's very detailed and hinges on these narrative shifts these plot points these 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 character developments character decisions the entire plot hinges on this it's not going to be an idiom it's not going to be a figure of speech that we just hand with unless it's like a fable but uh, i i think we discussed in the debate we don't think that these are fables being discussed in the bible uh, we don't think job is a fable Maybe, maybe it is. Uh, we don't think Genesis is a fable. We think it's meant to be taken historically. And so read things in their context, how they are meant to be taken, and understanding how idioms, allusions, metaphors, similes, how those things work. That That's the goal of any good biblical scholar. We just don't hand wave things because they don't meet our theology. We always have to ask, what's the immediate context? What does the context suggest about the meaning of of this phrase and how is the audience meant to uh meant to take this phrase what are they what is the audience meant to get and walk away uh, of value what do they get a value mentally from what's being communicated here and remember the bible is a book of advocacy i, I don't know where i was discussing i might have been discussing with will duffy somewhere but the bible is a book of advocacy it's a big book and the Bible is meant to convince a people to worship God rather than the false gods. It's meant to put together a picture of God, a true picture of God, and distinguish him and set him apart from the false gods. Give us a true recognition of who the divine is. So dismissing all these descriptions of God as anthropomorphic, I just don't think works in the context of what the Bible is meant to do. Um. So, and then the, I think the second uh, issue that comes in here is um, that it did not come into my mind that they should do this abomination. So even if we press the literal sense, 
I think there is even a sense in which the literal sense is true that God did not consider commanding burning their children in a fire to Moloch. And that, in a very literal sense, is true in that God knew that it was morally wrong and it would have been against God's character to do such a thing. So, um, you know, I don't see this text as supporting open theism kind of at, at all on either side. You know, if, if it's just talking about this, the simple... We might have skipped it. I'm not sure where they're getting their open theist proof text from. Let's uh, see if there's anything that says anywhere. Just going to click around. I'm not sure where they're conjuring these proof texts. Get it. And then on the other hand, if we press the literal sense uh, too much, then, well, it's it's absolutely true that God does not command people to burn their children in the fire of some Moloch, and he does. Yeah, right. Let's skip, skip forward. Way of coming up with his decree of providence that it wasn't even on the table. And the reason is because it's moral, moral evil. So skip the verb. Neither more. of these open theists is so blasphemous as to say that God is not wiser than man. Uh, and so if that's true of mere human beings, then it's also true of God. And uh, let me, there's another example that uh, I want to use, which is coming from 1 Samuel, First uh, Samuel 16, 7, but the Lord said unto Samuel, let not, look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I've refused him. For the Lord sees not as man sees, for man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And I know this gets open theists crazily excited because it's using this look metaphor to describe <laughs> and the see metaphor <laughs> to describe. Oh, so this is a really good tell what Turton fan just did that they've never actually interacted with open theists. And uh, so basically the only open theist, quote unquote, that get excited about this is like, myself and maybe will duffy and so he's watched one debate with one open theist and now he's ascribing it to all open theists and oh it's so funny there's a sermon against me by duluth bible church back when i lived in minnesota a long time ago and uh, they're like open theists refuse to acknowledge that god is perfect it's like what are you talking you you've interacted with one open theist in your life and now all open theists do this one thing you know uh, you've, you've, you've got one data point. Oh, it, it's so funny. Uh, but uh, I, I do like that he's pointing out that this is talking about God looking at the hearts because this this doesn't, if, if this is going to give some sort of mechanism by which God knows our hearts, I mean, what they, what they ha have to do is come to these verses and say, oh, the Lord knows our hearts. And they have to just assume the mechanism. Oh, he's got some sort of innate knowledge into our hearts that like he could see the blueprints as they're updated in real time um, and then into the future as well, because uh, they're closed theists. And that that's that's what kind of data God has about our hearts. But within the Bible, when we're talking about hearts, it's always God tests to know our hearts. And so what's the mechanism by which by which God knows our hearts the bible gives us gives us these details if we just read the bible god searches to know god tests to know god tries us and gives us trials to know our hearts so the mechanism is described and it's not what they assume in the text 
language that's not here. They, they just have to assume it. It says God knows something and they say, oh, that's ungenerated, eternal, non-discursive uh, type of knowledge that's unfalsifiable from time eternity. Uh, it's just not there in the verse. You, you just have to assume your proof texts are saying what they're saying. And uh, they're just not they're just not proof texts against open theism. Uh, but the bottom line is, while we're talking about the question of God anticipating people doing this, clearly God knows the heart of man and he knows what's in man's heart. And he knows that things like child sacrifice are something that that are in man's heart to, to go about and do this and to engage in this horrible and abominable practice. And uh, I, I guess let's turn into the verse that uh, you and I discussed offline from Deuteronomy. Yeah, so one thing I pointed out in the debate is the Bible says the Prince of Tyre knows all the secrets of the heart. And so how how does the Prince of Tyre know the secrets of the heart? Well, he's a smart guy. He's intuitive and he could read people. That's That's how the Prince of Tyre knows all the secrets of the heart. It's not this, you don't have to just jump to some sort of strange metaphysical explanation that's not in the text and just say this must be the way and no other no other method uh can compare or, or is, is possible you don't have to do that but they do that because they don't actually have a proof text that describes the mechanism that's why in the debate one of the subtoxic topics was how does god know what he knows and they didn't have any verses they didn't have anything describing the open theist brought a ton of verses to bear that that talked about how god acquires information how God is familiar with things, and they had nothing. They just had to argue, oh, all your verses don't mean what they say, and instead our view, which is not described in the text, is actually the true one. Deuteronomy, if you could turn back to that one. Sorry to listeners that there's pieces of this not, not audible. But we'll get to it right now. Uh, so in this, in Deuteronomy, we see God specifically saying, uh, don't worship the gods, don't worship God the way these other nations worship their gods. And one of the things that he specifically says not to do is to burn your children in fire to their gods. So the idea that God didn't, that it didn't occur to God that people are going to do this can't possibly be right, the right interpretation. Yeah, I don't, I don't know who they're arguing against. So I'm going to skip forward again. I think they stay on this verse quite a while. Because jumping forward, there's they still got that they still got that highlighted. Where where's the four four hundred years? Where is it? Okay, I have to rewind to get to the four hundred years. Their their labels are misleading. Oh, but we do need to see the four hundred years because that's what I came here for. The four hundred years the prophecy, and I don't know how he came to that conclusion. There's uh, in a scripture. Uh, I, I think Exodus we're I think we're missing some stuff their view and i think they might have done better and provided a better debate if they had just answered those questions directly when they were brought up but you know they get to decide their own strategy of debate not me uh, there were a number of uh, there was a facepalm moment from my perspective where chris seemed to suggest that the exodus that was prophesied over 400 years in advance is an example of a loose fulfillment of prophecy. And I don't know how he came to that conclusion. <laughs> There's uh, in a scripture, uh, Exodus 12, 41 says, and it came to pass at the end of the 430 years, even the self same day it came to pass, 
that all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. To me, that seems like the exact opposite of a loose fulfillment. That seems like a precise fulfillment. And I realize that there's some scholarly debate or scholarly discussion around how to calculate the 430 years. Do you say that the people of Israel were in, in Egypt for all of those 430 years? Some people will say that you kind of need that in order for them to multiply as much as they did. Others will say that 430 years is counted from when Abraham received the promise, which is significantly before they came to Egypt, and they were in Egypt for 200 and some years. And I got the sense from Chris that he felt like the, it seemed almost as though he was saying that the Bible itself is playing fast and loose with how the scripture is getting fulfilled. And that can, that troubled me because it, it did, you know, it does seem like it's, not just an issue of open theism at that point, although open theism is bad enough because it compromises God's omniscience. And uh, it, it also, and immutability, as, as Chris ended up pointing out, but it also creates bigger problems in terms of how to understand the scriptures if you're going to say that the scriptures clearly say that it came to pass the same day. So this is their proof text, by the way. This is their proof text. They say, oh, this 400 years, see this proof text? It it requires free human actions. And you're like, where did this ever happen? Where was this fulfilled? They don't have an answer. They say, oh, the, the Exodus, that was fulfilled. And you say, well, no, that, that was 430 years. It wasn't 400 years. It wasn't fulfilled. The time frames describe the things that happened. There, there's not a 400-year period that you could point to as the fulfillment. So maybe you want to start at the oppression. Well, that's kind of like 80 years. You could add in the wandering in the wilderness, an extra 40 years. So now you're at like 120. And then you need to get another like uh, 280 years or something from somewhere to mean something. Um, it's just, it didn't happen quite like it was described in Genesis. Now, I, I, I actually think Genesis is a later written book than exodus right uh i but so so it's it's not even like a hindsight correction in their mindset it's just like 400 years 430 years yeah that's close enough that uh, we, we we'll put that on the paper and uh it won't bother us because their view of prophecy and prophecy fulfillment is not like like what we think oh there's a prophecy on whatever day you're going to say these exact same words and in, in 200 200 years this exact thing is going to happen no, it's like uh, 400 years, and then it's like 430 years. It's like, yeah, that's it. That's it. That's about it. 400, 430. That's close enough. That's that's the level of prophecy fulfillment that we look to in the Bible. Even these people, even though they're not admitting it, that is their standard for prophecy fulfillment. And so when they say, oh, oh, how, how could God know that uh, Judas is going to betray him three times? And... Uh, that must be some sort of faded thing about the future. And if not, then God would be undone. Well, no, you wouldn't. You would. if, if he denied him one time, you'd make some lousy excuse. And if it was recorded in the Bible, you're going to deny me three times. And there's only one denial recorded in the Bible. You'd make some, some lousy excuse to try to justify it uh, post hoc, after the fact. The same way that you deal with this proof text here, that the 400 years of slavery, oppression, and wandering, it's all post hoc justification of why it didn't 
really we don't actually see a prophecy fulfillment and they're perfectly fine with it their faith is not shaken so which tells you that they're being disingenuous when they're claiming that prophecy proves their positions and then they point to specific prophecies and specific prophecy fulfillment as proof positive uh that open theism is false well no that's that's coincidental if if it wasn't fulfilled in that exact way you would have no problem your faith would not be shaken uh, no one's no christian's faith is going to be shaken in that and we would have went on like normal human beings and we say oh one denial three denials you know that's kind of kind of close there uh it doesn't matter it does not matter in their views we know for a fact that that's the case because of what they're doing right here this post facto justification of uh, something that didn't uh, observably did not come true in details came true in spirit but not in details and often in the Bible, that's what we see is prophecy coming true in spirit and not details. On that very same day. And then you can say that the scriptures, based on other arguments, that the scriptures are somehow playing fast and loose. It compromises the truth of scripture as well. Uh, there was, in terms well, of this, let, let, go let ahead. Me, let me comment on that because I think that's important. So um, it not only says 400, 430 years in um, the Exodus account, but Stephen in his speech in Acts 7, uh, 7 verse 6 says it was 400 years, and in Galatians um, 4, 17, Paul says that it was 430 years. So, you know, it's, so I guess there, there could be some question of, well, what about the 400 versus 430? And I think um, Chris did kind of bring that up, but, you know, the 30 years, it sounds like a long time, and it is, but when you're talking in terms of hundreds of years, it's kind of a rounding detail. Um, <laughs> but then the, where this is coming from and what, what threw me off that Chris said was, well, it could have been 80 years, right? And th that, I think we, we have some idea of where that's coming from because at least one, if not two of the genealogies and numbers um, only provides for two generations. Um, no, no, I said 80 years of oppression. And so you, you read in Exodus, uh, Exodus starts out, a new Pharaoh arises, the new Pharaoh doesn't know Joseph, and then he starts to oppress Israel. And this is the time when Moses is born. And Moses goes through his life, uh, he flees Egypt, and he comes back, and he's 80 years old when he comes back. So the oppression, the actual oppression, where they weren't living as a celebrated guest, uh, who's great Great to have you guys. You saved us from a famine. The only their oppression was actually 80 years. And part of that verse in that they like to quote about the 400 years is oppression and sojourners and wandering, that, that type of stuff. And so the oppression is only about 80 years. That that's 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 all all we have in the biblical historical record that we have the oppression. And when people try to ex post facto justify these things, they say, oh. There was an event once in Genesis where one guy did something mean to another. So that's when that oppression started. Some sort of crazy explanation like that. But historically speaking, there's only 80 years of oppression. Between, I guess, uh, Joseph's time frame and the Exodus accounts. But the uh, the issue there is that the, the uh, genealogy in uh, Chronicles, 1 Chronicles 7, uh, 20 through 28, which goes from Ephraim to Joshua has um, 
many more generations, enough generations to, to cover uh, the 400 year span. So, you know, and we've seen that also in, in Genesis, there's some genealogies that simply for the sake of brevity, just to, um, omit some generations. And actually we see the same in the, um, in uh, Matthew, I believe when it com comes to Christ's genealogy, there's uh, some genealogies. So I think we did get our quote that we're looking for originally. I said, uh, the Bible often plays loose with prophecy and they've admitted that uh, there is a 30 year discrepancy that they can't account for. And Chris, how did you go back down to 58 subs? Well, I'm not a nice guy. And so some people figure that out and then they unfollow me. And so <laughs> that probably works. Uh, but let's fast forward. And uh, I think that's the 400 year reference. I'll have to clip that together because that is actually pretty funny. And uh, see what else they have to say further on. We'll skip that, that whole never entered my mind. I don't know who they're arguing with. I don't know who they're debating with on that subject. I, I don't. I don't think highly of it. I do agree that it does seem to ignore implicit conditions in threats that God makes, threats of punishment. When when we are understanding the scriptures, we definitely should read all of what scripture has to say, and it seems clear that scripture repeatedly points out the mercy of God and God's willingness to accept repentance and to forgive as one of his characteristics. And we see that in the Exodus 20 version of the Ten Commandments. In that version, it says... Uh, so Drew McLeod says, someone tell Turton fan that he needs to invest in a better mic. It was really funny. There's a Calvinist Facebook page and this uh, kid posted this anti latent flowers video. And I just did some like normal critiquing. It's like, is his mic audio seems like it was recorded on a Nokia phone from the nineties. And the kid got so hurt. He was like real mad at me. He's like, how dare you talk to me? I am a kid of a single mother. I was like, what, what is, what is going on here? What? I'm giving you feedback to help you improve your performance and, and help you uh, like uh, do the aesthetics in your videos. And what are you doing? You're complaining. You're like, I, I can't do helpful criticism. I guess I, I could barely hear him. Like the video, he would play like Leighton Flowers, like super loud. And then his audio would be like super low. And so it's like, I, I, I can't, I can't, I, you know, if, if you want to be able to make a point, people have to hear you. That's one good thing about the debate that I really like is my mic was a lot louder than everyone else's. I think it's because I went into my, my Microsoft settings and you have to go directly into your system settings and there is a mic volume adjuster. And so I, I cranked that to the top. And so I, I think that did give me a little bit of boost for that. Audio is the, one of the single most important things for a podcast. I, I do think so. I, I need to buy a new mic. I got a, a blue Yeti mic, but I don't know how damaged it is. And uh, But I'll probably have to invest. It's just laziness. So it's not money that's that's holding me back. It's uh, I, I'm lazy. But uh, that is pretty funny. That kid was pretty butthurt. I offered to buy him a steak too. I was like, uh, I, you sound like you have low testosterone because like whiny males, you know, uh, whininess is a sign of low testosterone. So I said, I I'm going to buy you a steak. And all the Calvinist moderators got real, 
real mad at me about offering to buy some kid a steak to increase his testosterone. It was a real offer. I'd, I'd buy that kid a steak, uh, especially since he's in a single household. We'll assume single mother. Uh, they, they could use a steak, probably. And it probably helped that kid out in the long term, but he didn't want to take me up on it. Maybe, maybe it was a pride thing. But if someone offered me a free steak, I, I would turn turn it down. I was uh, on Veterans Day, running around to all different types of uh, restaurants, getting some free food. I had to actually pay a lot of money because I'd bring my kids with me ever, and so it turns into a full price meal anyways. But it's like a little bit of a discount. That's good. Under the second commandment. I am the Lord thy God. Uh, I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. So, already God's character as merciful is expressed in that very summary form of the law, and the the people who hear this law should understand that God's God's mercy. We, we saw that in the case as well of Jonah. I think that may have come up briefly in the debate. I can't recall off the top of my head, but Jonah as well. He's given this prophecy, which on its face looks like an unconditional statement that Nineveh is going to be destroyed, but it's so well known to Jonah that these threats of punishment are- Jeff says, I'll take you up on the stake, swap for a crown peach. I don't know. I'm I'm I've I'm finished my crown peach bottle. I don't know if I want to buy another one because then I'd have to drink another one. And I actually, uh, despite popular opinion and perception, I don't actually drink a lot of alcohol. It's just that when I do, um, I, I drink a little bit and I could handle it. It's fine, but I don't often drink alcohol. Conditional threats, threats that God will do this, assuming there's no repentance that Jonah doesn't want to go and tell the people because he's afraid that the people will will show uh, their repentance and that God will spare them. And he doesn't want them to be spared, so he doesn't want to go and tell them. And he goes to great lengths to try to avoid telling them, and God thwarts his plans. Uh, first, he tries to run away. Then he asks to be thrown into the sea where he would, uh, on its face, appear that he's going to be essentially committing suicide at the hands of these uh, sailors on the boat. But God, in each case, thwarts Jonah's plans and has Jonah you know, saved by a fish. Drew, Drew says, in, uh, great oh, fish, and then I didn't pause spat it. out on. Drew says, Christy and I have a wedding gift wine still in our cupboard. And so I don't know when they got uh, wedded. Um, I don't know if it was before or after they had children. I'm guessing before, but that's a long time ago. Uh, I have this sitting next to my couch. Let's say it's. It's a $3 wine and it's like half drank. And I think I bought it like a year ago. So it's probably turned really bad. This is like really cheap wine from Trader Joe's. You spend $3 and they give you a whole bottle of wine. The catch is it has a ton of arsenic in it. So you're basically drinking arsenic. And maybe if you drink a whole bottle of it, you're just going to downright die. So I have I have not died yet. So that is good. I, I do enjoy being alive. I have no rights to be alive with uh, drinking half of this. But that that does show the level of alcohol consumption. Drew says almost four years, four years. Uh, one thing is really funny. I was living in Michigan and uh, my, my parents moved 
in South Dakota from one house across the state to another house. And uh, I was over there and, and you know, those kids, we kind of go through the things and take the things that we want because you don't want to bring a ton of things when, when you're moving. And so then I grabbed a whole crate of like alcohol, like Bacardi and stuff like that. Just like this whole crate. And I, I brought it to my house in Michigan. And Michigan's a terrible place to live. Never live in Michigan. And so my mom was visiting one day and she found the crate of alcohol I had taken from her house and she stole it back. She stole the alcohol back and without telling me, it's like, maybe, maybe a conversation like, okay, we really, I didn't really want to get rid of this alcohol. I, I wanted to keep it for myself. So I'm just going to take it back. I would have said, okay, go for it. But it just disappeared. And so one day, one day my wife's walking around, where's that Bacardi? It's like, it, it's missing. It's like, I think your mom took it. I think she did. She stole her alcohol back. Fantastic. But those are just the little personal stories. I, I guess everyone here is, is here for theology. And right now they're talking about Jonah and Jonah's perception. So we will get back to that. Onto the shore. And from there, finally, Jonah re repents and does what he's supposed to do and goes and preaches. And indeed, God does show mercy, even though the threat that's there doesn't have an explicit condition. It seems clear Jonah knows there's a, a condition there of this is not going to happen if you repent. And you know, the, the idea that you have to ignore that is a fundamental problem. There seemed to be a, a related problem, which was that if these things are conditional, that proves open theism, but that's premised on the idea that God doesn't know whether or not this condition will be met. And that's also... No, and so the idea is that if God knows something will happen, there's no condition which it ha otherwise happens. If something's faded, there is no conditional. And so saying... Uh, if this happens, then I will do this. If not, I will do this. If you know that other things never going to happen, that's a false conditional. It, it's just, it's it's not it's not what we conceptualize when people talk to us in that way. If this, then this, else this, then this. We don't say, oh, one of these is is uh, epistemologically closed as an option that it just cannot occur, never will occur, and especially in places like Jonah where there's no conditional even given. 40 days and you will be overthrown didn't happen. And the text says God didn't do what he said he would do. Where's the conditional? There's not a conditional offered. Yes, the conditional in the Bible in Jeremiah 18 says if people change, then he reconsiders the things he said and thought he would do. That's not like an implicit if then else in the original in the original threat or the original promise of uh, behooving someone, giving someone gifts. There's no implicit or explicit conditional there. Just God understands realistically that when conditions change, he will change likewise. After the fact, after he learns new truths about the current situation, that's what's being described in Jeremiah 18. Not this idea that, oh, sometimes I'll mislead you into thinking I'm going to do things that I know full well I won't because that thing will make you do the thing I really wanted you to do. That's not what's described in the Bible. That's not what they're talking about. That's completely false. In error, God does know. But, um, yeah. So, go ahead. So let's take Jonah and let's let's play it out for the sake of argument. Let's say that um, the prophecy wasn't conditional, but rather, you know, God just learns more as he goes along and he uh, 
changes his mind in the big picture sense of not changes his mind based on new information that he just didn't know that he just didn't have in that case what's happening is that god believes that they won't repent and jonah believes that they will and jonah is right and god is wrong and you know okay well no jonah he understands that he's opening up a possibility for them to repent i don't think that jonah thought these people will repent. He, he, the possibility of it would play in his mind. I'm being sent here as a warning. And uh, what if they repent? Why am I even doing this? God should just kill these people. What's the pur purpose of a prophet? Right? What, what am I there to do? And so I, I don't think it's going down as they're describing. I think Jonah does... Since when when has any like really wicked city ever d done a mass repentance? Like never in history, never in history. That's that's one of the very ironic things about the book of Jonah is something very unpredictable and you would not expect it. You would not expect it from the Syrians. And Nineveh was an Assyrian capital and the Syrians were very wicked people. You would not expect that to happen. And then it does happen. That that is one of the great ironies, uh, key points in the book of Jonah. That even God, when when presented with this situation, will show mercy towards a very vile, disgusting, hateful, murderous people that the Jews hate. This is this is a lesson for Israel to understand that God cares about people, even their enemies, to such an extent that He'll offer forgiveness to the worst of people. This is what it's illustrating to Israel. This is why it's included in the Bible. And uh, we, we need to take it seriously. You know, that, that, that should, alarm bells should be going off. Drew says, what will it take to convince these guys that, uh, these Christians, that God changes his mind? And you ask them, what combination of words, if found within the Bible, would uh, make you believe that God changes his mind? And I've asked a ton of people this all the time and they always say nothing there's no combination of words if found in the bible which would make them believe that god changes his mind You're, we're not dealing with people who want an honest conversation they have talking points and uh, they want to repeat those talking points and they just want to gloss over not consider and downplay anything you say it doesn't matter what you say it doesn't matter the combination of words that come out of your mouth they will just reject anything you have to say in favor of their own system. doesn't matter what combination of words, if found in the Bible, uh, if, you, if you've pointed out to them, it doesn't matter. They have their own system. They, they're happy in their system. What, what are we doing at this point? We're just peacocking our talking points. At that point, you know, that, that's, a, you know that, that's a red flag. But um, anyways. It, it, there was a troubling statement along those lines when it came to their interpretation of the passage where Moses uh, argues with God about God's threat to destroy Israel and replace it with the line of Moses. And their interpretation seems to be that <laughs> Moses came up with an argument that God hadn't already thought of. Yeah for why God shouldn't do this, and that persuaded God. It wasn't in God's consideration. It wasn't in his data set that he's considering at that time. Because remember, in their system, God's knowledge has to be at the forefront of God's mind at all eternity. And there's some open theists who believe this. There, there was one in the comments during the debate 
who is criticizing me and Will, whose name shall go unmentioned because he's an individual who's incredibly dishonest, who I have blocked on Facebook. So unmentioned name. Um, that's his position that this this part of aspect that's discussed in the Bible, that's taught in the Bible, we read it in the story, we read it in the commentators found within the Bible, looking back on the story, we find it there even, and they're saying, oh, that can't be because that violates my specific idea of how God's omniscience functions. And it's so funny. And that seems to imply that they, what seems to be behind that is this, apparent idea that Moses was such a smart guy that he came up with something that God hadn't thought of beforehand and that that uh or God is emotionally enraged and God's emotions affect God's thought process and Moses was offering more collected cool reasoning to God forcing God to walk through implications and procedures which tempered God can people temper God's wrath? Can people uh, calm God down? And this this was the big violation to that certain open theist. He didn't he didn't like the idea that God's actions are are heightened or modified in any way by God's emotions. God has to be a metaphysical input output robot that gives an exact response to every single circumstance that can be calculated not based on emotion but passive reasoning people want again I, i've talked about before people want god to be spock like all logic and no emotion and they see emotions as as a compromising feature it's like oh who's better kirk or spock oh spock because he's the logical reasonable one who doesn't let the emotions in who doesn't who doesn't uh feel the desire to prove himself or this anger or or, or temptation in, in in the case of Captain Kirk when he's interacting with ladies. But within the Bible, God's emotions very often are linked to his state of mind, his actions. They dictate to what extent someone's punished. Uh, how long things have passed actually matter. Uh, God having a cooling off time for punishment is talked about throughout the Bible. Uh, these, these are just biblical facets that that are that are there and they're treating it as if there's no data for this as if this is something alien to the bible why because they got their presuppositional philosophy about god's omniscience they're, they're going to dismiss this out of hand he said it's troubling to him it's troubling it that, that's always really funny to me the bible will literally say something word for word and open theists will be like okay i believe this word for word and they'll be like oh man that's problematic that's troubling. That's so awful you believe this. And the funniest thing is, oh, you believe God repented? That makes you a heretic. It's just God said it. I yeah, that's not me. God says it in the Bible multiple times, and then the narrator says it, and then the story bears it out, and I just believe it. Oh, now you're going to hell forever. If that's that's what we're dealing with. Therefore, God considered this point that Moses was raising. And then decided, based on Moses' input, he finally came up with a better decision than he would have come up with if he had just been on his own. It's absurdly blasphemous to suggest that, but <laughs> it does seem to be what they're saying. Uh, notice, notice their subjective value judgments in how they do this. Oh, that's a better decision. You know, like there can't be like value neutral changes. Everything has to be ranked. Everything is given a metaphysical value score. 
And then you, you like uh, list those value score reactions that God could have. And then God has to like max out that value score. Like, like it's a video game and there's different points attributed to different achievements. And God has to get all the top tier achievements with the, the most points. Like video games used to do this thing where as you progress through the story, they had this little counter up top, like a score. And then uh, you'd like be halfway through the game and the score wouldn't be quite be where you want it. So then you knew you kind of missed a few things that they wanted you to find. I, I think these people honestly believe that the metaphysical realm works like these old school, uh, not Atari, but uh, Sierra video games, like like Space Quest or something like that, where, where there's this metaphysical score and God is maximizing that score at all times, maxing it out. And there is a max answer. Like there's, there's one answer that's not the max answer. And then there's only one that is the max answer. And then God picks the max answer. So God's God is maxing out the space, his space quest runs every single time. He's speed running too, uh, by the way. He's speed running his space quest runs and maxing out uh, the points. That's their view of metaphysics, this metaphysical hierarchy of point values. There, there can't be value neutral changes. And God could not have been just as justified to destroy all of Israel and create a new lineage through Moses, that can't be just as justified as leaving them and allowing them to continue the line through that current generation. One has to be a superior uh, reaction to the other, right? Why? Oh, and, and how do they know it? Because that's the one that God picked, right? And so they, they automatically import their assumption. Since God picked that one, that other value is a lesser metaphysical value and God would have been a lesser God if he had picked that option. This is their mindset. The God is speedrunning Space Quest, max scoring Space Quest. And I don't see an easy way around it. They would, Maybe like King's Quest is another example. Any any old Sierra game. would say, well, we're not saying it. The scriptures are saying it or something like that, which is how they presented it during the debate, which was uh, one of those evasive maneuvers that they seem to be trying to pull. But... The the problem I'm is gonna rewind it on that, that seems to the the problem is that seems to be the implication of how they're interpreting the text. There's a better way to interpret it, which is not that it's a game per se, but that it's being that it is in some sense like a play in the sense of it's teaching a moral lesson. <laughs> it's play acting. It's play acting. I think it was Will who kept saying, well, where does scripture say that? That this is what it's doing. It's, it's teaching a moral lesson. Well, it doesn't use those words. It doesn't describe it using a Yeah, and every single commentator in the Bible doesn't have that interpretation of this passage. Only Turton fan does. Now, only him and other Calvinists and other Arminians. And, and they, they, do, they do have a motivation to take it in this way. Why? Because it undermines their entire philosophy, right? So they have to take it this way. They have to ignore future commentators in order to take it this special way. Because if it was true, if we just took on the face value what's going on, if we believed those future commentators, we're in a world of hurt. Exactly that language. But these, this New Testament says that the things that were done in the Old Testament are, are there as an example for us. And we see how the New Testament interprets the Old Testament. So there's that, but that's at a very high level. But more importantly, we see that the scriptures describe God in other terms, in terms that make it clear that there is no nobody who's 
a suitable counselor for God. Look at the book of Job. Look at the way God rebukes Job in the end, where he starts talking about, oh, really, you're going to tell me what to do? You're going to, you're going to give me advice? And, and God could say those kinds of things to Moses as well. So the fact that God doesn't is not a reflection on Moses being much brighter than Job. It's, a, it's just a reflection on the fact that God is choosing to condescend to humanity in a particular way. Yeah, so in their system, God cannot have a subjective value system as well. So if God says that you're not anyone to counsel me, that has to be taken as a metaphysical rule in the ether rather than a subjective value judgment by God. I think Job thought he had he had some sort of qualifications to give God counsel. And I don't think that Job ever repented of that specifically. Remember in Job, David Kleins writes about the repentance that Job has in the end of Job. And it, it's more of a repentance of standing before God in a lawsuit because he understands that his lawsuit is going to be rejected out of hand. And so he's meekly pulling back his complaints, knowing that they're going to go nowhere. That's Job's reading. And if that's true, um, then it could easily be the case that Job never recanted, even in spite of God saying that you're you're not anyone to counsel me or tell me anything. We're, we, we're not given an indication, considering if, if David Klein's reading is true, uh, we're not given an, an indication that he actually walked back those, even after being confronted by God. In fact, Kleins thinks that Job is defiant till the end. He's just now silent about it. In his interactions with Moses, that's different from the way he's interacting with Job. Not that God is like smarter one day than another, or certainly not that Moses is smarter than God. That's So one thing to notice is that all the characters in the Bible, when confronted with God and interacting with God, none of them operate with these people's Dan Chappas and Turton fans metaphysics. They never sit back and say, oh God, you know everything past, present, or future. You have this value maximizing formula that assigns the most points to all the actions that could ever happen. And so I'm just completely in your hands. Don't consider anything I say. And my input's just absolutely worthless. And, and don't take my input because you already have a value maximizing scheme in hand. None of them do this. None of them do this. They pray to God as if they're real people with real concerns that they really think that God's going to listen to and take into consideration. They're not. They're not Arminians. They're not Calvinists. They're all open theists, all of them. That would be a horrible takeaway. And uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. 100% agree. 100% agree. All right. Okay. Okay, so the next passage, and I'll be the first to admit, I found this one a little uh, more difficult. I like their little lady ads that they have on the side. They should probably use an ad blocker. ...than, frankly, some of the others. I had to really research it and give it some, some good thought. So this is uh, 1 Kings chapter 21, and I'll start reading in verse 21. So 1 Kings uh, 21, 21, and this is about Ahab. And it says, Behold, I will bring calamity on you. I will take away your prosperity and will cut off from Ahab every male in Israel, both bond and free. I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, um, the son of Ahijah. 
um, because of the provocation which you have provoked me to anger and made Israel sin. And then I'm going to skip down to verse 29. Um, So, all right, I'll go to 27. So it was that when Ahab heard these words, that he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on, on his body and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went into mourning. So uh, that, Drew McLeod says that would be a horrible takeaway uh, with quotes because that they're they're using their emotions. So usually when I see open theists say that'd be a bad takeaway, um, typically it's like a textual thing. So if, if you have a story where God repents of making man and then destroys man and people say, well, it's not a real repentance. It's just uh, a process change. Nothing happened within God. Yeah, open this like that. That's kind of a bad uh, reading of this text. It's it's not good. And and why do they say that? Because it's like not true to the text. It's it's violating the text. When they say it, it's it's more like this makes me feel bad inside, and my philosophy is going to be wrong if this is true. And so it's a bad takeaway because it violates my presuppositions. So not not all open the hashtag. Not, op- not, not all open theists, hashtag not, not all Armenians, hashtag not all Calvinists. But typically when I see that happen, that's what's going on. And there, there's the difference between that. Is, is it bad takeaway because it, it, it uh, throws away what we know about textual analysis? Or is it bad takeaway because it violates your emotions, how, how, how you feel inside? It, it, it hurts your philosophy, your theology. And the word of the Lord came to Elisha, the Tishbite, saying, See how Ahab has humbled himself before me. Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the calamity in his days. In the days of his son, I will bring the calamity on his house. Okay. So the I think we can either take this one of two ways. And I really was wrestling back and forth with myself on which way to take this Um, prophecy. And the one way to take it is just say that it's conditional in the sense if it's a warning or a judgment um, oracle, that sort of thing, and that it's given to an unrepentant Ahab. And so the condition is, you know, as long as you don't repent. And then when Ahab repents, then at least certain portions are reversed. Now I should. That, that's that's what it sounds like. It sounds like it's. Uh, oh, this is a conditional thing, and yeah, you you probably should repent. That's not what happens. That's not what happens in the text. He hears the warning, and he's like, "Uh oh, I'm in trouble." And he's like, "Ah, oh, God, please, I, I'm sorry. Please don't do this." And God's like, "Fine, I won't do this. I'm just going to bring this calamity against your children, against your children." Oh, just for for the sake of context there's several aspects that um you know didn't reverse right the, the dogs actually did uh, lick up ahab's blood um and then his house was destroyed they, you might say that it was partially fulfilled <laughs> they lost the kingship and jezebel died and she was eaten by dogs and um ahab's uh, male descendants were also eaten by animals before they could be buried. So, you know, most of these prophecies did come through true. But what about this aspect? What about the specific aspect of, um, you know, uh, in essence, where it says Ahab humbled himself 
And uh, because he humbles himself before me, I will not bring this calamity in his days. In the days of his sons, I will bring the calamity on his house. So one way of, of work, working that, like uh, mentioned, was that it, it's conditional. But another way kind of came to mind, and I started doing some research on it, and I started becoming more convinced that this is the case, that, um, that in essence, it's the taking the, uh, the kingdom from his house. And so the you um, in verse 21 is his, his family is his house. And um, I saw similar language with Solomon. So let's go to that other passage and see how it works. It's in uh, 1 Kings as well, but it's in chapter 11, and it's in verse 9 through 13. So the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned from the Lord God of Israel who had appeared to him twice and his command, uh, uh, I'm sorry, and had commanded him concerning things that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, because you have done this and have not kept my covenant and my statute, which I've commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father, David, I will tear it out of the hands of your son. Okay, so we have the same type of language. Because you have done this and not kept my uh, covenant, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you. So the kingdom was torn away from Solomon, right? But in what sense? Because it was taken away from his family line and his lineage and his kids. And his kids weren't going to get the, the kingship and the blessings that, um, that they sh frankly should have gotten. And in that sense, Solomon was being punished. Because I, I, so again, um, the way that they describe these things, um, you could use this language, this methodology to explain away any single failed prophecy that ever happened in existence. If I say, oh, kids, I'm going to bring you to McDonald's, and then they're then they're naughty, and I say, I'm not bringing you to McDonald's anymore, they'll say, oh, is that a failed prophecy? No, because uh, technically speaking, the earth is rotating, and uh, the rotation of the earth will eventually bring us to the spot where the McDonald's once was. Uh, so in that way, it is a fulfillment. So I didn't actually... You, you could do it. You could do it with anything. It's like, oh, I brought you there in spirit because uh, I I brought you there in your mind. You you sensed in your mind what it would be like to be at McDonald's, and so this did come true. Yeah, oh, mm, you could do it with anything. Uh, there's entire shows on the History Channel about Nostradamus. Oh, there's going to be a line under the city. Oh, that was that was during. Uh, didn't you know that was during World War II? There was a bombing, and then everyone hid in the subways. That's what Nostradamus was talking. He had a crystal ball. He could see World War II. He just didn't know how to describe it, by the way. <laughs> he didn't know how to. God just doesn't know how to describe some of these things, by the way. Uh, he just wasn't super technical on the 400 years uh, versus the 430. It's just, uh, he just sometimes, sometimes he writes 400 and he means uh, 430. That's what happened. Because his children were being. 
Well, one of the first memes I made when I got into making memes was the Nostradamus uh, meme. Uh, I don't have it pulled up or anything, but it, I think it's real funny. And uh, it's like Nostradamus sitting there, picture Nostradamus and see, I can predict the future. See something vaguely similar happened at some later point in time. So the good thing about, well, what Will Duffy pointed out one day is there are time, time delineated prophecies within the Bible which really cuts down on a lot of this nonsense. 40 days and Nineveh is going to be overthrown. Um, so they have to deal with the 40 days. And that, that's why it's better to point out time-delineated prophecy that has details in the text because any other detail is a lot harder to explain away through this complicated logic. Well, 40 days, they weren't overthrown. We, I actually had a guy trying to say, oh, they were overthrown. They were overthrown spiritually. I said, but the text said, that God did not do what he said he was going to do. What is that referring to? And he didn't want to answer that, of course. So that, that was pretty funny. But yeah, so that's why the 400 years is actually pretty critical. You know, 400 years is close to 430 years. And so, yeah, good enough. The biblical authors said good enough. Their system doesn't allow for good enough. Their system demands exactitude and champions itself on exactitude when that exactitude does occur within the Bible, within the debate, they're pointing out, oh, here's a time where God said what these people are going to be carrying and what they're going to say. Okay, um, sure, there, there's some exactitude there. But if they said something different, let's say that it, it records something different, slightly different, but along the same vein, they would also say that that fulfills it. Or they might do something where they say, oh, it fulfills it in spirit. Or if it's not recorded, they say it probably happened somewhere exactly as described in detail with the exact word structure. There, there's always excuses for anything that goes awry. That, that's why we can't take them as seriously serious biblical exegetes when they're trying to champion their case on the times in the Bible where something very exactly does happen. Because, yeah, it didn't have to happen. Their, their system would make excuses for anything happening. So it's not like a notable special event that's happening that they can point to and see, say, see, this is proof positive of my view. Their view allows so much latitude that they just, they, they, they compartmentalize. They compartmentalize when they get to these verses that they want to use to champion their point of view. Their point of view is loose prophecy. Their point of view is an open theistic model of prophecy being punished and you know if if we uh, consider that the sense could be the same that the you in in um i guess in verse 21 is considered ahab's family line then then that isn't a change uh, from that standpoint you know all of the prophecy gets fulfilled and that was just how the prophecy would be fulfilled so this might be where they start talking about intergenerational punishment idol killer points out that halfway through the show and we're about halfway they start talking about people not being punished for things other people are guilty of now i have a i have a unique view on this i think that intergenerational punishment was a pretty common thing within the history of Israel and the history of God, and then actually gets reversed within Ezekiel and Jeremiah. By that time, God dis, disowns that practice. It had been practiced before where I will uh, punish till the seventh generation, things like that, intergenerational punishment. 
but that is undone and God goes to a more individualistic system later within Ezekiel and Jeremiah. So it's a change in God's process of how he merits out justice because he's, he's championing the individuals. And remember, Israel was a Semitic religion and they thought very culturally. So um, their, their culture is a people and once a sin of one person counts against the sins of the other, this was their mindset throughout most of their history, which is then reversed, which is then changed within uh, the, the exile period. People are punished for their own sin. It's a novel concept. And then uh, the last point to make would be that in 1 Kings 22 and verse 23, um, the writer of First Kings goes way out of their way to make sure that this is um, a fulfillment of that uh, prophecy. So, um, and the Lord has declared disaster against you. So, you know, basically the, he, the writer goes out of his way to express to Ahab that, um, that the prophecy is, is being fulfilled and that's what happens. And then the judgment comes on, on Ahab. So I guess with that said, um, what do you make of this passage and the way that perhaps open theists use this text? I don't see much. Um, I don't see much more that this adds than the Jonah example or the, the other example of a prophecy where there's a conditionality to it that's implicit, not explicit. And in this yeah, there's no implicit. There's no, no implicit conditional. I'm just going to say that out loud. God intended to do it. Ahab knew he intended to do it. Ahab sought to change God's mind. And then God considered new circumstances and then changed his mind. We, we see it throughout the Bible. The, the implicit conditional is within God's character not within these prophecies, which are absolute. These, these predictions, these, these meted judgments that God gives out. In this case, it seems like a weaker argument because of all the things that are, uh, if you scroll up on the screen right now, you can see the, uh, the text. The only thing that's ambiguous is, it says, you shall speak to him saying, thus says the Lord, you have you murdered and also taken possession. And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, in the place where the dogs licked the blood of Naboth, dogs shall lick your blood, even yours. And uh, so the question is, where where was this, uh, where is Naboth killed? And I think we see that in... Uh, it says that he had a vineyard, which was in Jezreel. And so that's kind of the, uh, that's, that's what we know. We know also he was uh, executed. I don't know if we say it, he was stoned to death, First Kings 21. So uh, we know that he was stoned to death by the, by the inhabitants of the city. So it's somewhere. Uh, around this city, somewhere around Jezreel, presumably, that
I muted again, of course, because I'm I'm all coughing and stuff like that. It's uh, that killer vaccine that went into my arm and just just destroyed me. Now I'm now I'm coughing all the time and I got some numbness. Don't don't do the vaccine. It's a bad idea. But let's uh, let's let's talk about what what's going on here. We have to deal with what the text actually says that that God actually considered what Ahab said and then changed in response. First Kings 21, 29. Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because God saw. Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days, I will bring the disaster upon his house. Yeah, so what's the operative clause there? Because he has humbled himself before me, God's not going to do this thing that he says he's going to do as a result. And uh, we, we got examples in the Bible of God adding years to people's lives. And so this it's interesting that they point and pull up this example. I don't know if they get to the 14 years, again, since I've not actually seen this. I don't know if they actually get to the God adding years to someone's life, what that actually means. And, that, and no, I, I don't think that makes, makes him uh, metaphysically unable to die within 14 years. And I think what they're pointing out now is that God actually uses some of these things that he said against Ahab and still does it against Ahab within Ahab's own time. And so that is actually pretty interesting. So that seems to be another change in God's mind. God said, okay, I'm not going to do these things and then does them anyways, because Ahab doesn't uh, repent, right? When God adds 14 years to someone's life, they might not repent either. And they might live out those 14 years very wickedly. It, it's, it might not go as, as God plans. Uh, he was killed. And that's where the dogs would have licked his blood, somewhere right, right in that area. We don't know exactly where Ahab died. We do know that he died a bloody death. If you recall, uh, his death is recorded. It's not recorded, interestingly, in the book of First Kings, but it is recorded in the book of Second Chronicles in chapter 18. Uh, there he went down to uh, Ramoth Gilead. He ended up in a battle at, at, with the king of Syria. And the king of Israel... I mean, which is the... Am I missing something? Because if you just go to 1 Kings 22, it describes his death and where he dies and how he dies in particular detail. So I'm not I'm not sure what he's talking about, where the Bible doesn't tell us where he died. The term that's used here, instead of the word Ahab, but the king of Israel, which refers to Ahab, king of Israel told him, I'm going to disguise myself. And if you remember, what happened is someone, an archer, uh, who just randomly shot, managed to hit Ahab. Yeah, again, all, all that's in First Kings 22. So I don't, you, you just might, might be mistaken about that. In the joints of his harness, and Ahab told his chariot man, turn, turn, your, turn away and carry me out of the host because I'm wounded. And... Uh, the battle increased. He stayed, stayed himself up in his chariot against the Syrians until even and around the time of the sun going down, he died. That's what we're told. We're not told. Uh, so let's actually talk about that a little bit, because in 1 Kings 22, we get a divine council scene in which God queries, queries the angels for ideas how to kill King Ahab. 
and different angels approach God and they give various various uh, strategies in order to get trick Ahab to go into battle to die. And then God selects the one that he prefers among all of them. So what's the chance that in God's min-max strategy, where God's decisions always have to be of max utility, and if there's a better decision to be made, God would be a lesser God if he hadn't taken that decision. What's the possibility that those angels were able to find the maximum utility solution for that situation? Because again, remember in their theology, they already described it. Um, God has to do this maximum choice thing where they're the maximum utility out of any choice that he makes. If there's anything with greater utility, God is a lesser God. They've described this already. If God listened to Moses and considered Moses's arguments and changed, that would be God lessening his value. This is their theology and how these things work. It's not what we see throughout the Bible. It's not what we see in this incidence in which angels proffer, they proffer, they, they give to God a solution to the Ahab problem that actually works. And they implement it and, and it works out pretty well. So what's the chances that the angels were part of God's speed running for maximum efficiency in in uh, in uh, choi- cho- choices, right? I don't know. You know, much, except that he was in this chariot wounded for a long time. Uh, so presumably, since it's a, it's a mortal wound, an arrow wound, there's blood that's going down here. All right, we're already at uh, a minute uh, 20, so uh, uh, one hour, 20 minutes. So we're going to probably have to cut it off here. I'm probably going to have to scrub this to find that original sin reference. I can only imagine it's pretty close to here because they're, they're talking about intergenerational punishment, which is a very interesting concept. And and I'll have to go through some of uh, the Semitic text at some point. I'm gonna, I'll have to do a podcast on that, talking about how they saw cultures, how they saw people groups, and they didn't see it individualistically like we do now in the West, where everything is so individualistic. People are guilty of their own sins, and there's more of a communal idea. People, as a group, get punished for one person's sin, as we see throughout the Bible. Entire people are are, uh, hurt by God because one of them might have an idol in their tent. There's a communal punishment for the sins of one person which is reversed in in God's processes as the Bible goes on. Oh, uh, Idol Killer says, I got a a timestamp. Oh, there we go. Uh, 4808. Let's see how close we are. We are about four minutes away. So we'll just click on that timestamp. That's great. One one further point, I guess, in support of this being conditional, I think is the, the transfer of this judgment to the sons because you don't normally think that way. Now, I'm not going to say that, you know, his sons were innocent, you know, I don't, I don't know, but it, it, probably not. But you would think that, you know, Ahab would have some judgment coming his way. The sons would have some judgment coming their way. And it's odd to think that, well, a part of the judgment that was heading towards Ahab gets, you know, rerouted towards his sons. If this isn't some type of conditional thing that just doesn't. Um, that that would seem to cut against the grain of you know um, the the soul that sins it will die and you know the children won't suffer you know won't cure. I think as the case of Josiah is an interesting example of intergenerational punishment. There was there was a punishment meant to happen within the time of Os- Jos- Josiah, 
which is delayed till after Josiah dies because Josiah is righteous. So it's not as if God's just out there wantonly punishing innocent people based on the circumstances a punishment is delayed even further or it could be rerouted or moved to different generations. Uh, it's, it's a flexible punishment, but it's still intergenerational punishment. And God tries not to punish the righteous. That's that's one, one qualification we see throughout the Bible, that God does not punish the righteous uh, because that would just be wrong. Or basically won't be punished for the sins of the parents and uh, that sort of thing that you see in Ezekiel 18. So um, it does uh, support the idea that this is is conditional. Maybe what's happened here is that uh, Ahab has repented, but his sons have kind of doubled down or that sort of thing. So um, it, I think that adds a little bit further weight that it, it, it really doesn't make sense to punish one person for what another person does in this case. <laughs> I... That's something for us to discuss in a further uh, discussion about whether God punishes people for other people's sins. And it will probably go into our understanding of original sin, among other things. Okay, fair enough. We can have <laughs> that enough. discussion um, some other time. So. Yeah, so there are some implications. If God does not punish one person for another person's sins, um, then that does pose a huge problem to original sin. I might, I might side with Turton Fan a little bit on this, that intergenerational punishment is a biblical concept, at least up until Israel's exile, Babylonian captivity, at which time it seems to me that this, this process has changed. If you, read, if you read the text, it says, no more will this saying be on your lips that uh, a, a, a father eats sour grapes and the kid's mouth tastes bitterness. He says, no more. You know, so the language there is kind of like, you know, this had been the case previously, but now there's a process change. And uh, if there's process changes like that within God, if he's implementing new standards of justice, that is open theism. But uh, we will cut there. And before I get myself in too much trouble with intergenerational punishment concepts, and uh, we'll cut there for the night. Questions and comments, put that down below. Or uh, leave uh, or start a thread on the Facebook God is Open page. Thank you for listening. Uh oh, still still running. You, you have to like hit this thing like multiple times. It's like end broadcast. It's like, you re are you really sure? Are you sure you want to end your broadcast? Was that a mistake? Then you have to go 